0: Excel Pro. I had my first child when I was a second-year associate at a big patent law firm, which was very unusual at the time. And so I was reaching out to my peers, like, how do I handle this? Who do I talk to first? I reached out to professors who were just a year or two ahead of me for advice, for example, documents. And so I think using your peers is the best way forward, oftentimes your first pass.
1: Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law, where we provide expert interviews and coaching to accelerate your professional development. I'm Neil Augerleiter. Efficient infringement has become an increasingly common strategy in the patent world to the dismay of many patent owners. We're here today to talk about efficient infringement with Kristen Jacobson-Ozenga. Kristen is Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Austin E. Owen Research Scholar and Professor of Law at the University of Richmond School of Law. Excel Pro's expert interviews and coaching accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve your day-to-day job performance and make your career goals achievable. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP Law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now, Kristen Jacobson-Ozinga. Kristen, thank you for joining us.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your work and your background?
0: Sure. I'm a law professor. I teach in the areas of patent law, antitrust. I teach a first year class in legislation and regulation. I've taught a variety of courses over my career, and I'm also the associate dean for academic affairs. As far as my background, I started off with an undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering from the University of Iowa. Then I went to grad school, got a master's degree in electrical engineering from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. And while I was there, I worked as a computer programmer at a medical education software company. Left there and went to law school, got my JD from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And then I started my legal career. I worked for a couple of years at Finnegan Henderson, where I did patent prosecution and litigation as part of the electrical practice group. Then I clerked for a couple of years for Judge Richard Lynn on the federal circuit. And then finally, I started my academic career at Chicago Kent College of Law as a visiting assistant professor in 2004. And I've been at Richmond since 2006.
1: Can you give a brief overview of what efficient infringement means in the context of patent law and why it's important?
0: Sure. But I'm going to take a slight spin and reframe it as predatory infringement, because I think that's actually a more apt description than efficient infringement. And I'm going to explain why. And I'll continue to call it efficient infringement because that's the normal lingo. But just know that I personally like to think about it as predatory infringement instead. The way we usually think about patent infringement is the patent owner will sue the accused infringer for infringement. If the jury or the court finds the patent to be infringed and not invalid, the usual remedies are money damages for past infringement and then an injunction that prevents future infringement. And after that, the parties may or may not negotiate a license that allows the infringer to continue to do the activity or maybe not. And in that case, the injunction serves a couple of purposes. First, injunctive relief is the essence of the rights granted by a patent. What a patent gives you is the right to exclude others. Really, there's nothing else a patent gives you. So an injunction is the manifestation of that right to be able to exclude others. But also the threat of injunctive relief is meant to deter infringement. You could build a business around infringing a patent, set up your factory, set up your marketing, all of that. But if you know in the back of your head that if you're found liable for infringement and enjoined, then all of that setup goes to waste. So when there's injunctive relief on the table, you're more likely to proactively seek a license before you start infringing or design around or take other actions to curb that risk of being enjoined. So that's the background of what happens normally But with that in place now, imagine a world where injunctive relief is unlikely to be granted, even if you're an infringer, even if the patent is not found to be invalid, even if a court finds you to be infringing, this may set up for the infringer a different mindset. So the infringer now, if we don't think that we might be enjoined, you could say, oh, I'll I'll go ahead and take a license and I'll pay to use this patent. Or I could just go ahead and infringe, because if I'm found liable for infringement, The worst that's going to happen to me is I'm going to have to pay damages for past infringement and I'll probably have to pay a royalty rate going forward for future infringement. So either way, I'm just paying. And the worst that'll happen to me is that I have to pay to use the technology. Basically, the idea of infringe first, pay later. Right. And there's some benefits beyond that. If a court is determining the royalty rather than the parties as part of a license negotiation, The royalty rate set by the court in lieu of enjoining me could be much lower than the patent owner was asking for or would have asked for initially. So maybe I'll end up paying less and that would be awesome. Or I'll have a certain period of royalty-free infringement before the case concludes. So it's like an interest-free loan to the infringer. And then best case scenario, the patent owner won't ever sue me and I'll end up paying nothing at all for using the same technology. So efficient infringement or predatory infringement is an option in cases where injunctive relief is unlikely to be granted. And it's a problem in patent law because it changes how patent law is meant to work. And this all really started in the mid 2000s with the Supreme Court's eBay versus
1: Merck exchange case. Are there any industries where this is relatively more common?
0: Not necessarily industries, but circumstances. It doesn't make a ton of sense to engage in efficient infringement or predatory infringement unless you have a pretty good idea that an injunction will not issue. Okay, prior to the Supreme Court's decision in eBay, injunctive relief was being issued 90, 95 percent of the time after eBay. It's still a pretty certain remedy in most cases of patent infringement. But for the two circumstances, I'm going to tell you now. So the two primary instances where injunctive relief is routinely denied, meaning doing efficient infringement is a good bet, are the cases of patent licensing firms and standard essential patents. So let me give you a little more information about both of those. Patent trolls is what most people call what I like to say patent licensing firms. I think patent trolls is a rather derogatory term, but patent licensing firms better reflects what these companies actually do. And patent licensing firms are less likely to get injunctive relief if infringement is found than companies that actually make something. So the idea of patent trolls is companies that don't make things, companies that make all of their revenue based on licensing patents. There's bad patent trolls, the ones that just go out and sue on a whim on bad patents. But there's a lot of good reasons for firms to license their technology and make money off of that, whether they're making something or not. So these patent licensing firms are one of the cases where injunctive relief is less likely, and there's a couple of reasons for it. First, the Supreme Court's eBay decision that set this whole situation into motion basically said one of the factors is if money damages will make you whole, then you are less likely to get injunctive relief. And the idea with a patent licensing firm who's not making something that competes in the same market and who is basically running a business driven off of getting licensing fees, the idea is that if we continue to give you licensing fees for the continued infringement, you're getting what you wanted in the first place. So money damages will make you whole. You're not losing to the competition and all you wanted in the first place was money. So if we just give you money, that's better. Because of that, the courts have largely used the eBay test to say that patent licensing firms are unlikely to get injunctive relief. Also, courts don't like patent trolls for various reasons, largely because they're built up in the media as terrible things. I don't agree with that. But with that background and the fact that with money damages will make them whole. And so the eBay test comes out in favor of no injunction. That's one of the two instances where we're more likely to see efficient infringement. The other one's actually more interesting to me. The other place where we're unlikely to see injunctive relief is in the case of standard essential patents or SEPs. When technology standards are being developed, innovative companies who submit technology to the standards organization oftentimes will have to make what is known as a FRAND obligation. So the idea there is that if you incorporate my technology into the standard, We want the standard to be successful, so I will promise as the innovative company that any of the technology that I have submitted that is picked to go into the standard, I will promise to license, and I will license it on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory FRAND. So they've agreed to this FRAND obligation from the get-go as part of the standards development process. And so similarly with patent licensing firms, the way that courts are looking at this is, you have promised that you will give licenses to this technology, to these patents. And so money damages, again, will make you whole. You are not able to exclude people from practicing your technology because you have promised a license in all cases. And so because of that, again, patent owners who hold SEPs or standard essential patents are unlikely to get injunctive relief. Now, there's another twist here, too, just like with patent trolls. Patent trolls Courts don't like them. In addition to failing the eBay test, they're not going to get injunctions. SCPs have also run into this space where there's a narrative that's told that also makes courts not like them. So courts and commentators have been really captivated by the idea of what's known as patent holdup. And so the narrative goes, SEP owners allegedly charge and can charge exorbitant rates for the use of these SEPs or these patents that are incorporated into the technology standard because of the threat of injunction. If you want to produce a smartphone that runs on the 5G network, you're going to have to license 5G patents. Maybe the companies who hold 5G patents can just basically hold you up by charging very high fees and you can't say no because a cell phone that doesn't run 5G is no good to anybody. So that's the idea of patent holdup. And courts have incorporated this idea, this narrative of patent holdup as yet another good reason why injunctive relief shouldn't issue in cases of infringement of SEPs, because it's not fair to these companies that want to make 5G phones. They need to be able to have access to the technology. and injunction would prohibit access to that technology. And so it's not OK. Now, going to tell you that's a narrative. And like I said, courts and commentators super captivated by that narrative. There's been a lot of really good work done by others, not me, that says there's very little empirical evidence that patent holdup actually happens. Cell phone prices actually have gone down over the last 10 years, not up as you'd expect if people were actually holding up, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea is that between the Frand obligation letting them fail the eBay test and this idea that SEP owners are holding up implementers has turned courts to this idea of, yeah, we're not going to issue injunctions in those cases either. So those are the two circumstances. With SEPs, the industries that we're looking at are places largely like the telecom space where we have 4G, 5G. We have a lot of standardization happening in the space of Internet of Things and also in the automotive
1: industry. How does efficient infringement impact individual inventors and smaller patent portfolio holders versus larger ones?
0: Okay. So first of all, from my perspective, (laughs) efficient infringement or predatory infringement is bad for all patent owners, whether you are an individual inventor or a smaller portfolio owner or a larger portfolio. And so it's bad for all patent owners because it takes away that one right that's granted by a patent, the right to exclude. And there's some research being done right now. I have an essay that talks about how The change in the availability of injunctive relief is affecting the market value of patents generally. So what we're seeing, and it's a proxy for value, but what we're seeing is that more licensees are taking non-exclusive licenses, which are generally viewed as less valuable than are taking exclusive licenses, which are viewed as more valuable and so when we see this shift from people taking exclusive licenses to non-exclusive licenses, one of the inferences we can draw is that the patents are becoming devalued. And it's largely because of this idea that you can't get injunctive relief. And so a non-exclusive license is more in line. But to actually answer the question you wanted answered, particularly for individual inventors or smaller portfolio owners, the idea... The idea that infringers will purposely choose to infringe rather than take a license really puts a higher burden on those smaller firms or individual inventors because they can't engage in negotiations to get their license fees because the infringer has chosen to infringe rather than negotiate a license. They're going to have to sue in order to end up with any sort of remedy whatsoever And these smaller firms and individual inventors may not have the financial or legal wherewithal that a larger portfolio owner may have at their disposal. They're not going to have the ability to hang tight necessarily while they're going through the litigation process to receive the money they should have gotten from the get-go. And so it has a very detrimental effect on these smaller firms and individual inventors that may not be able to recoup the money fast enough in order to even stay in business.
1: And what strategies can patent holders use to help protect against efficient infringement? And how effective are these measures?
0: One way that patent owners should protect against efficient infringement is to support efforts to overrule the eBay opinion. So there has been various talks, proposals, as far as I understand at this moment in time. There's not actually a live proposed bill, but there has been over the last few years the talk of supporting a bill that is going to overrule the eBay case from the Supreme Court and instead put into play a presumption that injunctive relief will issue any time patent infringement is found. And patent owners should really get behind that bill and focus on legislative efforts to return the presumption of injunctive relief. So that's one thing that patent owners can do. And it's going to need to be a legislative fix because the Supreme Court opinion in eBay, there's no way to fix that other than to get the Supreme Court to overrule it. They are not going to do that. So it's going to have to be a legislative fix. Another thing to think about is other jurisdictions, as I mentioned, specifically Europe, have been much better about not looking at infringement by SEPs in a monolithic way. So in the United States, if you're an SEP owner, you just don't get injunctive relief. In Europe, there's a little more flexibility that in European patent infringement cases, if the infringer has been what is termed an unwilling licensee, so they're not coming to the licensing negotiations in good faith or they're unreasonably delaying the licensing negotiations. In those sorts of cases in Europe, courts have been more willing to grant injunctive relief, even for standard essential patents. To the extent that you do have an infringer who could be deemed an unwilling licensee under the European framework, taking them to court in Europe might be a way to get injunctive relief that will then shake things out a little bit, which is different than the United States. The United States courts have not really jumped on this idea of the unwilling licensee, even though it's been brought up in some cases. It just hasn't really been adopted in the same way that the European courts have. So that's not a really good strategy. Go to Europe instead of the United States. But if you have the option, European courts are a lot more friendly to SEP owners, sometimes, if you can make the case for the unwilling licensee. And the last place where we've seen better success for SEP owners is with patent pools. So there's been some success with this in the automotive space, for example, with the Avanchi 5G pool, where you have various infringers suggesting that they shouldn't have to take licenses because of issues with the patent pool. And courts, even in the United States, have basically said, no, the Avanchi patent pool is good. You're going to have to take a license from them. And so it doesn't necessarily help entirely with the idea of predatory or efficient infringement, but it's good. So the idea of patent pools is that it's a collection of standard essential patents that are able to be licensed as a group from the pool organization, often a third party that manages the patent pool. And so it's good for the licensee. It's good for the alleged infringer or the wannabe infringer, whatever. It's good for them because it provides one-stop shopping. They can just pay a fee and get access to a variety of SEPs held by a number of SEP owners. They don't have to go to each individual SEP owner to negotiate individual licenses. It's also good because there's some comparable licenses or there's a flat fee, for example. There's not a lot of negotiation. So it's good for the licensee. It's also good for SEP owners and with the smaller portfolio owners, I think having your technology incorporated in a patent pool, if that's available to you, is good because I think it's going to deter efficient infringement even for the smaller patent owner due to the visibility of the portfolio in a particular technology space.
1: From a high level, how would you describe your career path?
0: The windy path makes sense if you follow it. I come from a family of educators, my mom, my aunt, my uncle. And so I've always thought very highly of teachers, but I also have a scientific brain. So I went into engineering. And what happened while I was in my undergraduate career is I didn't find a lot of good female engineering role models. And at that particular time, in that particular space, I understand things have changed drastically in the last 30 years. But when I was in engineering school in the early 90s, I actually thought I might want to become an engineering professor so I could be a good role model. So after undergrad, I went to grad school for engineering. And there I got a little disheartened about the academic path because my thesis advisor did very little writing. He did a lot of grant writing. He supervised a lab, but he wasn't really hands-on. While I was in grad school, I went to a conference held by the Society of Women Engineers. And there was this fantastic panel titled, What to Do If You Don't Want to Be an Engineer Anymore. One of the gentlemen on the panel was a patent attorney. And he talked about how great patent law was. It was melding of the right brain and the left brain. You get all that science and technology that you loved and probably why you went to engineering school to start with. But you also get to talk and argue and that art side of the craft of law. And so I was really drawn to this idea of having both the technology that I spent way too long in school studying, along with something that would allow me to be more of an educational person. So I went to law school, not thinking I was going to be a law professor, but just thinking I can talk. And I can do science and this is going to be awesome. And so then when I was in law school, I was sitting around talking to my patent professor who ended up being a mentor to me. I told him this long drawn out story and he's like, you should be a patent professor. You could be a good role model there. And here I am. And I love my job.
1: Can you give an example of how you relied on peers and not mentors or bosses inside and outside your organization to deal with tough situations?
0: I think there's a lot to be said about relying on your peers in particular because they're close in time to the experiences you're having, but also they're not really in a position to impact your future. They're not deciding whether or not you get promoted and they're not deciding whether or not you get a raise. So I have spent my entire career talking to peers whenever I have questions or concerns as my first stop. When I was in practice, I didn't want to look stupid in front of the partners. And so oftentimes my first stop would be an associate attorney just a year or two ahead of me to see if I could get an example document of when they were filing this sort of thing. Or, hey, if you're writing a memo for partner X, how do they like it to look? And so I would get that from my peers, but also a personal situation. I had my first child when I was a second year associate at a big patent law firm, which was very unusual at the time. And so I was reaching out to my peers because partners having babies, who cares? But associates having babies, this is a whole new territory. So I was reaching out to my peers, like, how do I handle this? Who do I talk to first? This is odd, right? Nobody takes maternity leave within 12 months of starting a job. And so that was a time when I relied a lot on my peers to steer me in the right direction. And in academia, it's really been the same thing. When I was going through the tenure process, I reached out to professors who were just a year or two ahead of me uh, for advice, for example, documents. And because again, they're close enough in time, but they're not going to be in a position to judge me or decide my future. And so I think using your peers is the best way forward oftentimes your first pass.
1: That was wonderful. Our guest was Kristen Jacobsen ozinga Kristen, thank you so much for being here.
0: Of course. Thank you.
1: For a transcript of this conversation, and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP Law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. Thanks again to today's guests. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614 642 2235. That's 614 64 Excel. Excel Pro IP law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Tuela Kulkarni, Kaylin Cole, Jared Garth. INESH Bose, Arnesh Bose, Matt Crossman, and me, your Remember, we excel together. See you next time.